0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. My name is Tim Park. I'm one of the pastors here, and a special welcome to all of those here uh, on this uh, long weekend. And so, thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see you here. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. I'm looking forward to learning from God's word along with you this morning. We have a treat this morning. Our pastor emeritus, Pastor Mark Hopper, is going to share God's Word with us today as we continue our series, Boundless, a study of God's Word. Today's genre is the actual book of Psalms, a collection of Psalms. And today's message is entitled, The Psalms, A Poet's Paradise. I thank God for Pastor Mark. Pastor Mark has been serving faithfully here at our church for over 33 years. He served as our senior pastor for 27 years, and then in 2015, he graciously handed the baton to me, and then served on our staff for an additional three years. And then, in the last three and a half years, he's been serving as our pastor emeritus, and he just keeps serving so faithfully. I cannot thank God enough for Pastor Mark, for Jeannie, their entire family, and what they mean to our church community to our community at large the impact that they continue to make it is so far reaching and so it is really an honor to have him come uh, and to share god's word with us today and before we welcome pastor mark to the stage would you bow with me i want to ask god to prepare us to receive his word and to use pastor mark as his mouthpiece thank you god for this special sunday any special, and any Sunday that we gather together in your name is special. So thank you for what you're going to do, and what you have been doing, Lord, already today. Father, we ask that your spirit would prepare our hearts. God, that we'd be receptive to your word this morning. Soften our hearts, make them more like Jesus's heart. Help us, Lord, to, to love you, to love people as much as we love ourselves, to be the best neighbors possible, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be his his mouthpiece. Lord, right now, I pray a special prayer for Pastor Mark as he comes and delivers your word. Thank you, God, for your faithful servant. As he teaches us, God, would you teach us and transform our hearts so that we, would be changed. We would be a new Lord, and we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Would you join me in welcoming Pastor Mark Hopper?
1: Well, thank you. It is a an honor to uh, speak with you this morning and open the word together, uh, and I want to say thank you to Pastor Tim for his kind words. We always kind of joke about that term emeritus, and and nobody really knows what it means. It's a Latin word, and uh, I just tell people it means a good-looking pastor. (laughs) But in truth, we know that Tim's a lot better looking than me, and a lot thinner than me, and he's got more hair than I do, so we're thankful for Tim and Joanne. Um, Let me just give you a quick update on Jeannie. Some of you uh, I do not know. By the way, to me, one of the funnest parts about coming, continuing to come and be a part of the church here is to see new people. So if I haven't met you, hello, it's nice to meet you. And uh, I'm not real good with names sometimes. I miss them, and then we have masks on, and it's difficult. You're thinking, now oh, is that Bill or Bob? Who is that behind that mask? But welcome. The fun part is not just having a, uh, knowing a lot of families over many years, but really what's fun is new families that have come, and we're seeing more and more in the aquarium over there the, uh, with families and little kids. But my wife, Jeannie, as some of you know, has been on a 15-year journey with cancer, and uh, we're grateful every day is a gift. Uh, I would say right now her, her situation is steady. It's, it's stable. The cancer is still there. It, it will always be there according to the doctors. And he's a wonderful Christian man. It's just the kind of cancer, the breast cancer, the, I can't remember if it's positive or negative, but it's just, it's just there. But medicine, uh, some treatments started last January, it's dramatically slowed the activity and the progress. Your prayers, your support. So thank you for your concern for Jeannie Hopp. And uh, uh, we're we're grateful. We had 50 years. I think you know that. In June, 50 years. We got married when we were 12, you know, so. (laughs) We were 20. You look at those pictures and think, how in the world did our parents let us get married when we looked so young? I want to just say a word about a a book. Most of you know about my book, and not to dwell on that other than uh, we basically run out of copies. And if you want a book to give to somebody this Christmas season, most of you already have them, but uh, we're going to order a batch. But we can order 20 or we can order 50. And so there's just a sign-up sheet out on the patio. Don't take that book. It's like the last one in captivity. But if you're interested, just write it down. You need to pay anything right now. We'll, yeah, but hopefully there's a turnaround time of two or three weeks that could make some books available. We had just this past week kind of caught my attention that someone needed five and someone else needed two. And suddenly the little box was getting pretty empty. So it's an honor to, uh, to share with you today and appreciate Pastor Tim's prayer. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to hold up your Bibles, but, but if you look at this, this is pretty intimidating. In my generation, I would say the technology is intimidating. I'm always worried I'm going to hit the wrong button and erase everything on my computer I'm working on volume two, by the way, the book, and cutest story. We had our grandkids at our house over Thanksgiving. They wrote a story for the next book. They started to tell me a story. I said, wait, let let me. And I began began to type on my laptop. It's the cutest thing. I said, you're going to be published authors. They were so tickled. It was just worth every minute. Um, But technology, my grandkids, pop up, let me help you. I mean, the, the TV and HDMI one and two, and how to find Disney Plus. I mean, they just click, 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 and they're on it. And I'm going now. Which which control do I use? Well, the same thing can be true with the Bible, and I, and I often say this in other settings that it is big and it's thick, and and it's it's like intimidating. Like, where would I start? And how do you make sense out of this thing? And I appreciate the series that Pastor Tim and Luke, uh, Kevin, and 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 Tim. Callahan. They've teamed up. It's been really fun to see those young guys, and Tim's doing a great job leading them. But it is, like, what do you do with this? So this morning, my goal is uh, to kind of just give you a little review. Now, two things I'm going to say. My wife said, you're not really going to, I told her I was going to preach on, she said, everybody's already heard that. (laughs) Well, after 27 years of preaching, most every Sunday, yeah, but There's a wonderful little book at the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter, three or four, maybe five times Peter uses the word remember or remind. And he says, I know I've taught you about this, but just as a reminder, we all need reminders. So if this is too familiar for you, just try to look interested and uh, even behind those masks. But I mean it sincerely. I used to go to a conference and think, well, I've been to seminary for four years, and you know, I, I pretty much, I mean, the, the best seminary in the, certainly in the country, Dallas Seminary, what more is there to learn until I met a medical doctor at our church in Dallas. And he, he said he went to a conference twice a year. And I thought, Dr. Binion, why, why do you need to go to a conference? Because I have more to learn, he said. So it changed my attitude. So anytime I would go to a conference, or convention, or, or uh, you know, the different things, I learned to, to hope and ask the Lord either to teach me something new or remind me of something that I already knew but have kind of forgotten. We used to do that at our church. Oh, yeah, why aren't we doing that anymore? You get a reminder. So if you're in the senior class here and you've heard this before, just just look interested. And if you're a newbie and, and this is new, I hope it'll be helpful. So one of the things that really gets my heart going, I was teasing tim but i mean here's a guy that runs marathons I, I ran two miles in high school cross country that was plenty marathons but he just loves that and it's good for him and, it, and it's exciting to see his success at that for me the thing that gets my heart going pitter pat is when somebody wants to learn about the bible and and especially if they know nothing about it no church upbringing or very little background of the bible so I love to do that. And so let's follow that. Put that in the back of your minds as we study the Psalms today and, and just some tips and some ideas that may help you and may help you help someone else, okay? So we're going to turn in our Bibles to the table of contents. Are you with me? Here we go. The table of contents. I hope you have your Bible with you. Uh, we, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but uh, it, it just I, I know you have them on your phones and that's handy, especially when you're, in a setting where you're waiting for an appointment or whatever, but I'm I'm a great believer in having a hand something in your hands. Now, here's the first thing you'll see on the screen is that the Old Testament is organized into three parts. I went through seminary and somehow I missed that. We were studying all these individual books, and then and then I went to a seminar called Walk Through the Bible, and and boy, they were just it was packaged and clear and crisp and really gave me a great overview of all those little bits and pieces I'd study. So in in the Old Testament, there's three sections. The first is the historical books. And you would want to put a line between the book of Esther and Job. In other words, from Genesis to Esther, those are the historical books. Second, there are the poetical books, and that's from Job to the Song of Solomon. Those five books are books of poetry, and we're going to look at one of them specifically. Finally, in the bottom third of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, is the prophetical books. The books of the prophets. We call them the major and minor prophets. These are God, the, the people that God empowered both to tell about things that were in the future and to, to uh, uh, confront and, and con- encourage, challenge people about their relationship with God. And that goes from Isaiah to Malachi. Got it? Now, in addition, You can read even less books and get the overview of the Old Testament with these historical books. So I suggest you put a little dot by each one just so you'll know. You would need to read only about 12 or 13 books out of all these Old Testament books to get the historic flow. So here we go. You would need to read Genesis and Exodus. Just put a little dot by those. You would not need to read Leviticus. Skip that. (laughs) I tell people, that doesn't sound very biblical, does it? Skip Leviticus. You'll get lost in Leviticus. Trust me. You'll come back to that later. So Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, and Judges. Just put a little dot by them so you'll catch these. The book of Ruth. I just finished reading Ruth. You can never stop loving Ruth. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell this in first service, but, but I've been using Eugene Peterson's The Message. So I'm reading something fresh and different. It's not really for study, but it's delightful for reading. He is a funny guy in the expression that he, and he's a brilliant scholar of Hebrew and Greek, the, the biblical languages, but puts them into very contemporary words. Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, my favorite guy, and Esther. So if you only read, you could count them is that 11 or 12 or 13. If you just read those books, you would would understand the historic overview of the Jewish people. All the way back to the days of Genesis until the end of the Old Testament. New Testament, by the way, this is free to add to it. It's divided again into thirds. The first five books are historical. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Put a line between Acts and Romans. In fact, Luke has become my favorite author because he's a history, reliable, brilliant history scholar and source of information. Then there are letters to churches and to individuals from Romans down to Jude. Those are letters. And then the prophetical book is the book of Revelation. Does that help you a little bit? I, it helped me just, to, oh, oh, that makes sense. They're all important. Again, let me give you one last tip. If you were to read one chapter a day in three years, you would have read the whole Bible. Now, that sounds like a long time. And it's kind of like for Pastor Tim running a marathon. It takes time. You, you don't finish that in a hurry, and it's, you, you keep moving. So here's what I suggest. Don't start on page one. Start in the book of Mark. And you understand why? Because that's my name. I've said that many times. Oh, don't say that. But it's easy to remember. Sixteen chapters, you'll have read one book of the Bible. Half a month. Just read one chapter a day. I, I've been enjoying the historical books so much, I've been kind of cheating and reading two. I'm into uh, uh, First Samuel now. And just, I just love this. So just read a chapter, and you'll miss a day. This is not some kind of spiritual miracle. It, just, it will nourish your hearts. We'll explain more about that later, but you could do that and start in the book of Mark. It'll it'll encourage your hearts if you do. Now, we want to talk about this paradise of the poets. I got that title from someone else, so I cannot claim authority on that, but the Psalms See, I'm a history guy. I love biography. I I mentioned in first service, I love the story of people's lives. I read about the Wright brothers. Have you ever read the biography of the Wright brothers? I even read the history of In-N-Out Burger. That's worth reading. I love history. I love the events, and I love the people that make all that up. So I'm a history person. Give me the facts. Give me the geography. Give me the information. But for the Psalms, they are poetical. And, and, and though they're set in a historical context, they're, they're filled with language of figures of speech, metaphors, word pictures, artists, musicians, poets. All these people bring, bring a whole different perspective in terms of God's Word, the poetical books. Now, just as there are different types of music, and, and some of you love classical music, some of you love uh, uh, well, I, I love the 60s. I love the Beach Boys. Anybody here like the Beach Boys? Bless you. I wish they, I wish they all could be California girls. They stick with you. And that's what's neat about music. And, and I was reading uh, uh, Tim Keller, I sense is a good pastor, a good man, and he was saying that the neat thing about the Psalms is they were set to music. And so people learned them and memorized them. So there's a value to music. And you remember our children's program. So you today still know songs that you learned in, in preschool or, or in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Your kids will know those, and some of your grandkids will know them as well. So there's different kinds of music. Well, there's different kinds of psalms as well. And, and what you'll find is that uh, you, you, there'll be different kinds, different emphasis. So you'll find them rage, ranging from pessimism to praise from delight to depression, confidence to confusion, anger to alarm. So be aware as you're reading different psalms. And the other thing, the, words, the word itself for psalm in Greek is a song sung to the accompaniment of a plucked instrument. Did you notice what we had up here this morning? There weren't trumpets or saxophones, they were plucked instruments. So there, do you understand And and you'll see in some of the psalms, they'll give you a hint of which musical instruments were used and information and direction were given. A song written to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. They were written over about a thousand years and they're divided into five books. And I don't know that that's really critical, but different seasons. And and you'll find, if you you want the divisions, it's chapter 1 to 41 is the first book within the book of Psalms. They all end with a little praise like amen or praise the Lord, a summary of each one. 42 to 40, excuse me, what we have, 1 to 41, 42 to 47, you'll see that at the end, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to the end. Many have the name of the authors, not all of them. David wrote about half of them. Do you remember David's story? So you could read that in 1 Samuel, how he got to know the King Saul and because David was a musician. And he soothed the heart of the king using music. Solomon, Moses, there are others. So we're just starting today. And by the way, this might be a fun study in some of your Sunday school classes in more extensive, more detailed. Some of you in those adult Sunday morning classes. Now, one of the things about the Psalms is often, not always, but often it gives us a a context. What's what's behind this story? So let me give you only an example of one. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. For me, it helps when you understand the context, the setting. What's behind this psalm? In Psalm 51 there is this prefix that's part of the text of the Hebrew, original Hebrew text. This is for the choir director, Psalm 51, a psalm of, who's the author? Hello, anybody out there? David, David. good. I want to make sure you got that. And, and the setting is when Nathan, the prophet, he's the one with the crooked finger. When my pastor would tell this story, he stuck out that bony finger that Nathan pointed right at David. And he said, you are the man. Read it. You'll see. It. You'll even see the bony finger. You'll see it in there. But Nathan the prophet came to confront David after David had gone in an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. You got that? So knowing that background, then you read, and I'm only going to read the first paragraph. Be gracious to me. Oh God, David, just pours out his heart. According to your loving kindness, that's God's covenant commitment to us. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. David is confessing the horrible things that he has done. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is pouring out his heart because he had committed adultery. And you know the story. See, read the background. You can find it in 1 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. That's where you'll find that story. Many of you have a study Bible. Do you have a study Bible? It'll help you so much. Uh, Just just give you cross-references, footnotes, so you would be led to uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So in that setting, it tells what David did. David had a relationship with his, one of his most trusted friends' wife. He knew who Bathsheba was married to. There was an inner circle in David's life called his mighty men, 30 men, his trusted inner circle. And one of them, if you ever read, you'll find him in Samuel, is Uriah. And yet even though he knew Bathsheba, learned that she was Uriah's wife, he committed adultery. And not just adultery, but then to cover up what he had done. he uh, uh, First he gets Uriah to come home. Uriah won't go to his home. His troops, fellow soldiers are in the field. He sleeps on the doorstep of the palace. So David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note in his hand, a sealed document to the general, the commanding general. I think it was, I won't remember real off the top of my head. It was his death warrant. The message he took back to the front was, put David, excuse me, put Uriah on the front of the fighting so he'll be killed. It was unbelievable what David did. And so here he pours out his heart, confessing. There's some others. There's some others. About 13 of the Psalms will give you some of David's uh, settings of where he was fleeing from Saul, etc. Now let's go back to Psalm 1. We're only going to cover one psalm. There's 150. You don't want to stay that long. And so we're just going to pick one. And I picked one for you. Just the very first psalm. Now one of the things you need to understand about the psalms is that this this Hebrew poetry, we think of poetry, and if you watch some of the words, that they rhyme, right? Like Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as... Snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Snow, go. Oh, that's a rhyme. Fun sometimes with grandkids to come up with a word, and we just keep throwing out more synonyms, more other, or, or homonyms where they sound alike. It's, they get a big kick out of doing that. So we look for, for, for the sound, the rhymes, and the words. But in the Hebrew poetry, it's different. It, the idea in the Hebrew, it's not the sound of the words, but the thoughts and ideas. From the poetry. You got that? It's not the sound of the rhyme, it's the thoughts and the words. So, a couple of examples. In fact, we'll see some here in this psalm. For example, there are some that are synonymous. Like we would say, run for your life and jog for your health. Just keep running, Pastor Tim. We would, we would use synonyms to, to reinforce one word, one line reinforces another. We'll see one here in a moment. There are some that are word pictures where the first line will illustrate something in the following line. Faster than a speeding bullet, strong as an ox. Then there are some that add. We call them synthetic, it's a technical word. But the idea is that the second line adds to the first line. So like we might say, well, my dad is stronger than your dad. There's nothing he can't do. Do you see how we've added on? And then there's antithesis or antithetic where there's a contrast. And we'll see that in this psalm as well. But the idea is that, that one thing is stated and the opposite is stated. Sometimes contrast helps us. I showed the first service my cell phone. You would be pleased I got a new cell phone a year ago. I think I replaced one that was 10 years old. So here, what color is my, uh, my cell phone? It's black. Bad idea. Do you know why? Because we have a piece of furniture in our house and the top of it is black and i can't find the phone the cup holder in my car the console you know in between the seats what color black there are numerous times i get out of the car and leave the phone in the car because i don't see it do you understand so sometimes it helps if there's a contrast in the psalms in its poetry saying one thing and then contrasting it with something else that makes sense Next time I get a phone, I'm going to get a white cover. I, I actually now intentionally look for some place to put it that has a piece of paper, white, black, you know, or a countertop that's at least a color contrast. And our family photo—I don't know, probably Pastor Tim. He's an excellent photographer. My dad taught me years ago. It helps to have contrast and the color red. If you get a chance and you're in a picture, wear red because it will provide a crisp contrast. And I've done that on more than one occasion. Don't tell my children that. They'll want to know, how come dad always wears that red shirt? (laughs) Let's look at Psalm 1. Basically, what's going to happen here is there a a contrast. It's in two parts. The author is not known. But here's what the psalm says. "How How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the paths of scorners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, rather, this blessed man, we're going to call him righteous, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His law, on his law, in his law, he meditates day and night. And therefore, he will be like a tree. Remember we talked about word pictures here? He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields fruit in the season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. So the author is giving us one example and he uses an opposite, doesn't he? He says, this this man who is blessed and I'm going to call him righteous down in verse 5 and verse 6. This righteous man, this good man, he doesn't do these things, but rather he does these things and he's providing a contrast between them. By the way, I want to make clear here that, that when we're talking about a righteous person, we're we're not not talking about justification here. We're talking about someone that has a heart for God. That would be my definition in the Psalms of a righteous person. And the wicked person may not be a real bad person, but one that has no heart for God. In fact, if you flip over, look at Psalm 4. I think it is Psalm 3, Psalm 4. You know, how about ten four? Psalm ten four. It says, "The wicked." Here's that man we're going to talk about in a minute. The wicked man, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek God, for in his thoughts are there is no God. We're going to come back to that. We live in a culture today that is the, the emphasis and the embracing of God is becoming less and less. We'll talk about that in terms of your kids and my grandkids. So, when Paul is talking about righteousness, oh, let me show you one more. Over in Romans, keep your finger in Psalm 1. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. See, the Bible says that none of us are righteous. We cannot gain a right standing with God on our own efforts. The reason I want you to see Romans chapter 3 is Because Paul is making a case to the Romans, Jews and Greeks, that they are not right with God. Look what he says. Pick it up in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Are we the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. We have already concluded both Jews and Greeks are all under what? Sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. But look at the next eight verses. Every one of those verses is from a psalm. I didn't really pay attention to that. I suppose I knew that and forgot. So look what he says about making his case about how we are all sinners before God. There is none righteous, verse 10, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless there is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is like an open grave. That's got to be terrible to smell. The poison of the asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I had missed that. I mentioned Pastor Tim had talked about forgiveness last week and bitterness. The the antidote to bitterness is forgiveness. You remember, he talked about the man who was forgiven, but then he wouldn't wasn't willing to forgive others. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The paths of peace they do not know, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. All of those are out of the Psalms. Someone said that the most quoted book in the New Testament is the Psalms. I haven't documented that, but I think that's true. So let's go back and look at Psalm 1 again. This man, this blessed man, this righteous man has a heart for God, and he intentionally does not, and and these three words that are mentioned, he does not walk, he's not influenced by wickedness. He does not stand, he's not patterned his life like the wicked. And he does not sit. You see that in verse 2, the end of verse 1? He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. I didn't, I started to think, what's a scoffer? Somebody have a different word? I believe there was a scorner in the a mocker. Thank you. And there are probably others. In fact, I went and looked uh, uh, online at the dictionary, and it was surprising, the number of words. Mock, deride, um, scoff. uh, What else? There were a couple other words that were mentioned. It was surprising. We live in a culture, I want to apply this for a moment, where I believe a lot of people think that what we're doing today makes absolutely no sense at all. Why are you giving up a, a morning when you could be watching a football game or working in the yard and come and sit to some good-looking older pastor? And I think your kids, Tim Tim and Joanne, they have two kids in college, and uh, we were talking to another family, they have three kids in college. Kids on those college campuses are being bombarded with ridicule and and innuendos and and subtleties that people that read the Bible, they're they're way out there somewhere. But that was not so in our country a generation or two ago, certainly not in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And a scoffer is one who's like undermining someone's beliefs, their values, their morals. They just kind of subtly poke fun. I'm going to make an editorial comment here. I don't know if any of you remember a guy named Archie Bunker. Remember All in the Family? That was a generation ago. Don't bother looking at it. But what they did subtly was get our country to laugh at our values. In a, in a humorous sitcom, uh, time after time, just little subtleties, making fun of Archie, who was the, really, they make him out, the, the, the bigoted, opinionated. But they just, they just wove that in to our culture, in my opinion. Your kids are facing that with people who scoff and scorn and ridicule and undermine their faith. You think about it. Where where are you getting your strength in this culture? If it's on the Internet, that's pretty pretty mobile, pretty squishy. You need a better source, and that's what we're looking at this morning. It seems to me quite an irony that uh, my children, one of our our daughter and son-in-law, are in a former communist country. And it's difficult to even get someone to believe that there is a God because for 70 years, communism taught them there is no God. What did we read in that Psalm 10, verse 4? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's a tough road back to say, you know, there's a Bible that tells us about God and, and the values that we share. And the, it's so different from what you or your parents, certainly your grandparents were raised on. So this righteous man is like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. And notice what he does in verse 2. He delights and he meditates on the, Lord, on the word of the Lord day and night. These are all synonyms of, of the Bible, Scripture. That's where he gets his strength. That's where he's anchored. But look down in verse 4. And oh, the result is that when he it yields fruit, does not wither, he prospers. And I'm not talking about my financial prosperity, but his life is prosperous, healthy, and, and productive. But in verse four, we have the opposite. Here's this contrast. The wicked are not like that. He is like chaff in my Bible. Anybody have a different word? Wheat? Chaff? Everybody got chaff? Anybody know what chaff is? I know we're not in a Sunday school class. Here's the story. In, in Bible times, they would take the wheat at harvest. They would lay it on a, a level surface, a ground, and they would get an animal like an oxen and a sled, a flat board that was then tethered to the oxen. And they would lead that oxen around. And that, that heavy sled, they'd put weights on it, would crush the wheat. And, the, and, and, and so as they went around time after time, it would begin to separate. The shell from the wheat. And then they would go to a high hill, not a, a mountain, but an a area where there would be a breeze, and they would take this, this mixture of the, the, the wheat and the shells and the chaff, and they would fill it in a basket or more of a flat kind of basket, and they would toss it up in the air. And the wind would blow away those shells, and the wheat being heavier would be caught back in the basket. That was separating the wheat and the chaff. And he's saying here that this wicked man is like chaff, that the wind drives away. Can you picture that? See, we didn't grow up on a farm, most of us, so it's hard to envision that. So it's like chaff, the wicked, the wind drives them away. And he says in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteousness. By the way, did you catch this? And it took, I must have read this verse 20 times, this passage. And I finally dawned on me that over here the righteous man doesn't stand with those who are what? Sinners. And here the wicked will not stand and the implication is with the righteous. The judgment of the righteous. The sinners in the assembly, in my opinion, will not sit with the righteous in verse 5. Just as the righteous man did not sit at the seat of scoffers. you see the contrast that he builds? And so he says in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. And I'm not talking about bad people. I'm talking about those who have no heart for God. He knows the way of the wicked. It will be to perish. Do you get the contrast? Now, keep your finger one more time in Psalms. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. And then we're going to draw some applications. Jeremiah chapter 17. come on, we all have to look at it. We're not leaving until we finish. (laughs) Were you ever in a college classroom and you're just ready to leave? And then the professor will say, does anyone have any questions? And inevitably one person who's trying to improve their grade says, ah, professor, I have a question. And the rest of the room kind of goes, oh, I don't want you to be that way today. Jeremiah chapter 17. It's a similar picture that Jeremiah is drawing, and and I just, I think it's helpful. The Lord says, uh, thus says the Lord, excuse me, verse 5, Jeremiah 17, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart is turned away from God. He will be like a bush in the desert. So another word picture. It will not see, uh, and, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. I think he's talking about the hillsides of Palm Springs, down by the Dead Sea, the the Salton Sea. In contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a what? There it is again, a tree planted by water, extending its roots by a stream. It will not fear when heat comes. Its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. I love that picture. I shared in first service that my wife and I drive to Phoenix. She has family there, and, and so we, we know. But we almost put our car on autopilot because it's 100 miles from Diamond Bar to Palm Springs, another 100 miles from Palm Springs to Blythe, And the gas is cheaper on the other side of the river, by the way, if you need to fill up in Arizona, and then another 150 to Phoenix. We could just do that in our sleep. And I'll tell you, some of that land, especially past Indio, all the way to Blythe is barren desert. Little creosote bushes are trying to hang on for their dear life. But when you get over to Phoenix, especially in the days when I grew up, they have irrigation canals that run through the city bringing water actually from the Colorado River and from mountains to the east and north. You know what grew by those canals? Trees, cottonwood trees. I remember it vividly. Now they've taken them all out because they are taking away the water. They're soaking up too much water. But the difference was the bush is in the desert. The tree is by the water. And it's healthy and vibrant and rooted, and it's not going anywhere. He uses that same analogy. And so I think what the psalmist is trying to tell us is that those who believe in God, who have a heart for God, maybe that's the best word, and and obviously we would say have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, His death on the cross and resurrection as the payment for our sin. That relationship leads to health and growth if we nourish it. On the other hand, those who say God is dead, there is no God, the psalmist says they're like chaff that blows away. They're like a bush in the desert that gets blown by the wind. And you might even see a few tumbleweeds out there in the desert. So how does that apply to us today? Let me give you some very specific suggestions. First of all, I believe there are a lot of people that are very discouraged. This has been a crazy year. COVID-19, by the way, it's nice to be back. I was teasing Pastor Tim. He was kind of like Moses and led us through the parking lot during the COVID crisis. (laughs) Isn't that true? I mean, bless his heart, he was relentless. Only one time did they have to cancel a Sunday morning service, but he was our Moses who led us back to the promised land and finally back into the building. We were all out there in the, in, in the parking lot, many of us, and many online, and we are thankful for those online. But people are discouraged. Uh, some of them are having their own issues with life-threatening illnesses. There's a news, that you catch it this week, a new variant in South Africa. We may be on round two. Some of you have lost loved ones and friends, whether through the virus or other situations. Many of you have felt isolated from friends friends and family. And a new thing that's cropped up, lawlessness. Is it getting crazy or what? The grocery stores, what do they call these these, uh, mob? What's the right term? Mob things, robberies. It's crazy. They rush in hundreds, dozens of people robbing at random. I think it's discouraging. And it, it causes people to be afraid. Some of you have lost your job or lost your business or lost your income. Some of you have been buying gasoline lately. Inflation. Our children, isn't this funny? Our kids don't know what inflation is. But we do. Most of us in this room know what it was like to live through the 60s and certainly the 70s and the crazy inflation that went on. And here it comes again. Stock market had a huge decline, I heard, the day after Thanksgiving. That wasn't very thankful. Shortages of food and staple goods. You look at the shelves, still some shortages. And most of all, this uncertainty about the future for yourself and your kids and your grandkids. I'm a big believer in grandkids. What's ahead of them? So how do we, how do we respond to that from what we've learned in this psalm? And I believe the answer is back in verse 2. We need to delight in the law of the Lord. And we need to meditate on it day and night. We need to anchor our hope in God and in His Word, not in the news headlines, not in the uh, uh, economic predictions and forecasts, which they always use the word could. Have you ever, if you listen carefully, well, the news is on the harvest, it could be really bad this year. Well, the news is about, it could. It just fuels the fear and the speculation. What we need to do is not be a bush That it's blown around in the desert, but rather we need to be a tree firmly planted. And how do we do that? We do that by studying the Word of God. Now listen, you need to take a more active role in learning and growing. As Pastor Tim and others teach you well, you need to listen and learn. Here's some suggestions. Well, I don't want to say suggestions. These are important. Not just a suggestion. You need to read the Word of God regularly. Are you doing that? I know you've heard every pastor tell you that. But I want to tell you about my struggle. After I led the church for so many years, and then in that transition time into a more part-time role, I just felt like I kind of lost my rhythm. You know, I'm a routine kind of, give me a checklist. Okay, got that. Next, oh, Check, check, check. And, and, and so for a variety of different reasons, I just feel like I didn't really have a consistent time alone with the Lord. And I'm so thankful that just, just in recent months, that's really coming back to life so much so that I get excited when I see what time it is to get out of bed. My wife likes to sleep. Are there any other wives here that like to sleep? I'm a, a get-up-and-go guy. And I've got my little corner on a couch. I've got my Bible. I already mentioned about I'm reading out of uh, Peterson's. It's kind of fun, different a paraphrase, something fresh and new, uh, the message. I've got my orange juice, I've got my Bible, I've got my little prayer sheets, and I'm just enjoying that time reading the historical books. I'm not sure when I get to the prophets if I'll be as excited. That's just been nourishing for me. You need a plan, you need a place, you need a pattern. You need a place where you can just have a little time alone. I heard an athletic coach say the best time to do something like exercising, was his reference, is the morning. You know why? Because you have control over that time. Once the day begins, the phone rings, the kids need help. You've got to get to work. You've got to get them dressed. You've got to get this, that, 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 The only real time you have to yourself is to get up 10 or 15 minutes early. We have a group of guys on Friday morning. And we started that years ago. We meet and we Bible study, share together. But the reason was it didn't take time away from their family. Get up one hour early, one day a week, meet with some guys. That's what we did. And you can obviously do that with others. So read the word. Just just have a, a plan and a place and a pattern to follow. Second, meditate and memorize. Meditate on and memorize the word. Your children have a wonderful program where they are memorizing verses. If you're a parent of a little one, you need to learn those verses with them. I learned Bible verses when I was a high school student. Um, Navigators had a Bible, topical Bible memory system. Wonderful program. And there's some verses that are still stuck in there. Fear not, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I'll help you and I'll strengthen you. And I'll uphold you with my right hand. Isaiah 41, 10. Still there. There's a few that are gone. You need to study the word with others. We have these adult classes that do great things and life groups that are studying the word and sharing life together. You need to get in one of those. You need to worship weekly with others, and and as much as possible, come in person. I know there's some online for various reasons, are hesitant, reluctant, maybe even unable to come. So it's wonderful we can reach out to them, and even not just in this community, but across the country. It's really interesting. But come and be together. There's something about regathering, and bring your Bible on Sunday. Now listen, I know you can have a Bible on your phone. By the way, I'm not the senior pastor anymore, so you don't have to like me anymore if I tell you this. But I mean this sincerely. You need to bring a Bible with you to church. When my parents were, my mom had come to faith at a Billy Graham crusade, and we ended up at a new little church called Scottsdale Bible Church. And I always remember my dad saying, you know, there's something unusual about these people. They all have a Bible. My parents were raised in a more mainline denomination. They never needed a Bible. They never needed to bring a Bible. You need to bring a Bible and a pen so you can underline or put a note in the margin like a cross-reference from Psalm 1 to Jeremiah 17. You could do that. If, you better, if you've got to study Bible, it's Christmas. Tell your wife or your husband you want to study Bible that has notes and, and, and maps and tools that will help you. Bring your Bible. By the way, I'm, I meant to show you this. I brought a Bible today. This is a Bible that belonged to my great-grandfather. His name was Frederick Hopper, and you can't read it, but a man named Henry Butchtel in 1887 gave this Bible to my great-grandfather, Frederick Hopper, May 5th, 1888. Isn't that something? And I I told the first service, I was going to preach out of this just to honor him, but it's dusty and it got my nose running and it's a, but what a treasure! And by the way, I, I told them in first service that, that, yeah, starting right here, this thick in this Bible. Can you see the probably a fourth or a fifth of this Bible are study notes? This is called a uh, uh, what would they call it? A uh, helps for teachers and leaders. I mean, this and this was the and the print is microscopic. But there's a treasure. Now, I mean this sincerely. You need to have a Bible. You need to bring it. You need to use it because your kids aren't going to read your cell phone. And you can't hand your cell phone down to them. I know you can put it on the cloud. Say, well, my kids want to see what I'm reading. Your kids don't know if you're reading your email or the Bible. They don't know. They don't know if you're checking the scores from the weekend football games or if you're reading your Bible. And what are you going to leave to them or to your grandchildren? We're going to pass this Bible down to one of our grandkids going to be hard to figure out who. I want to just challenge you. Bring a Bible. Read the Bible. Memorize it. Study it. Meditate on it. Just build that consistently into the fabric of your life. I know you've heard that more times than I could count, but it's not hearing it. It's doing it. If you have a better plan, use it. Something works better for you, use it. There was a graduation speech uh, not that long ago by a Uh, Navy SEAL, a retired general, and he spoke at the University of Texas in Austin at their commencement ceremony, I'm going to say within the last decade, and out of that came a book called Make Your Bed, and he took, he basically told these students about some basic things that they drill into the hearts and lives of Navy SEALs. That these are the basics. These are the way you order your life. This is the way to be the best Navy SEAL possible. And the training is unbelievable what they do to those men and now women. But the first thing every day they did was what? Make your bed. He said, that's where you start. And it gets your life organized. And you've got one step in how many steps ahead of you. Make your bed. Well, I just want to challenge you. Get your life ordered a little bit. For some of you, you never read the Bible before. Start in the book of Mark. For some of you, you've read it 10 times. Get a new translation, paraphrase, something that'll just kind of give it a fresh look. Just little steps at a time. You can, you can be rooted firmly. Because I'll tell you, we live in a world where the winds are blowing. And, and Paul says that in Ephesians 4, I think it's verse 14, not to be tossed about by, by waves of false doctrine and false teaching and all this stuff that's being uh, just broadcast in all kinds of media. You need to be rooted. By the way, I think there's a good program with that name. I didn't mean to say that, but it just dawned on me. Rooted. So I hope that's an encouragement to you today. If you've already heard it, tell it to somebody else. If you haven't heard it, enjoy it and do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Just like the psalm says that those who meditate and 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 stay nourished just regularly. Lord, it's not climbing a mountain, it's just steady one day at a time. Life is a marathon and we just keep moving with you. Lord, we know that our faith is anchored in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection, where he paid for our sins and purchased a place for us in heaven. But Lord, we know it doesn't stop there. This is a life, a journey. We want to be well-rooted like trees that are healthy and bearing fruit. And we know that comes from a steady diet of your word with others and with you alone as we do that. So we thank you for that reminder today and for your word, how remarkable it is. May it nourish and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.